G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse, and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. It was one of the most brutal child killings in Australia's history. Leanne Holland's badly beaten body was found dumped in bushland in the outer western suburbs of Brisbane in 1991. This was a vicious, brutal, sadistic murder of a 12-year-old girl. The de facto of the 13-year-old's older sister was charged and convicted. Digging deeper, Queensland police say their review of the Leanne Holland case will be thorough. If we uncover any new evidence, we'll certainly explore that. Hi, my name's Graeme Stafford. I have not been involved in the production of this podcast but have been invited to tell my side of the story. In 1991, I was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Leanne Holland, a murder I did not commit. This is not my story. This is the story of the murder of Leanne Holland and a search for the truth, a search that continues to this day. A 610 Media production. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland? Chapter 4. In the Crosshairs. G'day and welcome to Chapter 4 of Who Killed Leanne Holland, In the Crosshairs. In Chapter 3, we covered the principal persons involved in this tragic case. We explained how time of death is determined. We discussed motive, means and opportunity. And we provided some sightings of both Leanne Holland and Graeme Stafford on that fateful day, Monday the 23rd of September 1991. In this chapter, we will discuss the happenings in and around the house on the following day, Tuesday the 24th of September as well as what occurred on Wednesday, the 25th of September, 1991. Before we go any further, let's get real for a minute. This case is very controversial, and people have strong opinions about it. With that said, we've gotten a few emails and and comments about it, so I wanted to clarify a few things. I'm not on anyone's side here, despite what some may think. Graham Crowley has come to his conclusions after some intense and lengthy investigations. He was hired by the Staffords to investigate the matter, and he's done so ever since at his own cost. I'm relatively new to this case, so I'm putting things together as you are. So let's get the facts straight. Graham and I are not anti-police. In fact, the opposite. We are both pro-police. They do a tough job in a harsh environment for little reward. I was only a cop for about three and a half years, and I've never claimed to be a detective or anything more than I am. But what I am is a true crime enthusiast with a strong sense of justice. I empathise with the victims of this crime. I feel shattered for 12-year-old Leanne Holland, who deserves the truth, whatever that is. What 12-year-old deserves to be beaten to death? The answer is no one. If Graham Stafford didn't do this, then his family has been ruined as a result and his life turned upside down. Being human, 
we make mistakes. And cops are humans too, and they also make mistakes. You'd be naive to think everyone who is in jail is actually guilty. Sometimes they get it wrong. It may be the police, the judge, the jury, the defence or witnesses. Sometimes we humans get it wrong. My intention is not to undermine police in any way. But people's lives are at play here. And that, to me, is worth exploring this case. I still don't know what happened to Leanne. I wasn't there. I do think this, though. They either got it right, and Graham Stafford is now out of prison, or they got it wrong, and he spent 15 years in prison in the last 30 years, with people assuming he's a killer. In 2009, Graham Stafford's conviction was quashed. So where does that leave us now? He either did or didn't do it. So let's get to the bottom of it now. We hope to definitively say who killed Leanne Holland at the end of this series. And nothing ventured, nothing gained. If this proves Graham Stafford was innocent, then that will allow him to live a normal life. We can focus our attention on who did. If this podcast points at Stafford for committing the murder, then we can put it to bed and end this saga with certainty. We're not the first ones to talk about this case. There have been podcasts, documentaries, radio programs, news features and books written about the case. And after 30 years, we are still here. So what does that say? It's not cut and dry. It's murky and uncertain. Well said, Jamie. Some people also forget that what we're actually here for is to catch a killer. They muddy the waters with their own allegations of what we are or aren't doing. But literally, we are trying to catch a killer. And between us, and with the help of the listeners and people who we've talked to, we may just be able to do that. That's the goal. That is the goal, mate. The easiest course of action here, Jamie, would be to walk away from this. Yeah. It's actually very stressful to continue working on this case. Yeah, 100%. And... The last thing I need at this point in my life is stress. When I first met you, Graham, you were you were going through chemo, chemotherapy for cancer. How are you at the moment? Actually, Jamie, I was um, given the all clear just today. Oh wow! Which which is uh, good news. But as I said, you know th- this matter is extremely stressful. And the simple and easiest way would be to walk away from it, but I'm not prepared to do that. Yeah. There's just there's just too much left unresolved here. Yeah, we're not doing this for kicks. No. Before we get started on Chapter 4, it was brought to my attention by a few listeners that I got Leanne Holland's date of birth wrong. I read it was the 10th of January, 1978. However, her birthday was actually the 1st of October, 1978. With that said... Let's get on with chapter four. In chapter three, we heard uh, about the various sightings of Leanne and Graham on the Monday, both confirmed and disputed, up until around 5pm. At that time, Graham and uh, Melissa went shopping in Graham Stafford's car. And that actually is another sliding door moment because Melissa could have placed her shopping in the boot of Graham's car. And she was later questioned about it and she said Graham didn't try and stop her, didn't talk her out of it, but she just chose to put them, put the groceries on the back seat. So I wonder what would have happened had she opened the boot. Because on the Crown case, Leanne Holland was in the boot, dead. Well, so if you look at that, he's either extremely ballsy. And Very <laughs> Yeah, I mean, very ballsy to to do that, to run the chance, to run the chance of of you know someone putting groceries in the boot, which is pretty common. Yeah. That's where I put them. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. And, far out. and and to take Leanne with him and Melissa and Terry to the police station to, to report her missing. That's also a very big act of bravado. Oh yeah, this was a compelling, strong circumstantial case supported by forensic evidence. There were no witnesses, no admissions, and in fact, Graham Stafford was strenuously denying any involvement. But having said that, it was a very strong circumstantial case. After his conviction, the case was the subject of lectures at the police academy for new recruits to show them you know, what could be done with just circumstantial evidence supported by forensic evidence. Well, and so... 
Graeme, what is a circumstantial case? Okay, well, let's talk about direct evidence. Direct evidence is someone who sees something, for instance. I saw him do this. I saw him pull the trigger. I saw him stab the girl. Circumstantial is is perhaps a, a most common example is a fingerprint at the scene of a crime. That is circumstantial evidence. And, of course, they the police then search that fingerprint, find it belongs to someone, and then they have a suspect. I preferred to use the analogy of a chain when talking about circumstantial evidence with every piece of evidence being a link in the chain. And by itself, the link is meaningless and could relate to anything or anyone. But when joined together, it becomes a powerful, interwoven block of evidence. Well, that's a good way to look at it. We'll get to the links in the in the Crown case shortly, but we just need to to perhaps do some housekeeping and and report on what happened on the Monday and the Tuesday. And so we've heard that they went shopping. After that, there was some discussion at the Holland House about the whereabouts of um, of Leanne. Graham Stafford related the story that Trisha Lynch had rung looking for her and he made the comment that she was probably at Trisha Lynch's place and Terry and Melissa accepted that. However, when they interviewed Trisha later in the week, she said that, yes, she did ring up, but she told Graham Stafford she would probably go to the shops to find the Anne. So it was a case of he said, she said, and, uh, the, and the Crown took Trisha Lynch aside and said that he was misleading to cover the crime. Right. So, so on the Tuesday morning, all three went to work and simply put, Leanne was missed. Sometimes sometime she slept in a bed upstairs. Sometimes she slept in front of the TV. Sometimes she slept in a father's bed downstairs. So at any given point, you couldn't really pinpoint where she was and everyone thought she was somewhere else. Mm. So as sim- simple as that, they went off thinking she was somewhere else. So on the Tuesday afternoon when they got home and found that she still wasn't there, then the, the concern was becoming evident. They drove around to a lot of her friends' places, including Trisha Lynch, but no one had seen her. So at that point, they all, they all drove down to the Goodner Police Station in Graham Stafford's car, and as I said, on the Crown case, the body was in the boot at that time, mm-hmm. and, and to report her missing. So on the Wednesday morning, Graham Stafford got up at his normal time and left for work around 6.10am. Now, normally he'd leave the house, turn right into Queen Street and head off down to where he worked at B&D Roller Doors. But on this occasion, he turned left and went up towards Belbur Park. And Melissa Holland was out on the balcony and about 20 minutes later, she saw his car drive down past their house in the direction of B&D Roller Doors. When she spoke to him later, she said, you know, what was your card? Where were you? And he said that he'd gone up to see Arthur Powell, which is where Melissa and he used to live. He was concerned. He was upset about Leanne. He wanted to talk to him about it. But Arthur Powell wasn't home, so he went back to work. On the Crown mm. case, he, he didn't go to Arthur Powell's, but in fact he drove out to Red Bank Plains and, uh, and dumped the body. Yeah. It's certainly suspicious for me or for anyone probably who's listening to that. That's right. That was something he had to deal with. Do you know, Graham? in that 20 minutes that he was gone and, and Melissa then sighted him drive back in the direction of work, is it mm. possible to do that? Is it possible to go to that body dump site, drop the body in and come back in that 20-minute time? The police the police did drive it from, from there out to Red Bank Plains and back again and they said they could Okay. They could do it. Not with a lot of time to spare, but they could do it. Right. Recently, I called that neighbour who lived next door to Arthur Power. Here's my conversation with him. Yeah, sure. My name is Paul DeSoti. So, did you live, in 1991, did you live next to Arthur Power? I did, uh, right next door. Okay, and what, what address is that? That was, uh, gee, that would be 20 or would be, because I lived at 18, he would have been uh, uh, 16. And uh, Graham's parents lived across the road. Okay, and what street is that? Dobell Avenue. Dobell Avenue. Did you hear him early in the morning on Wednesday come and knock on the door or his car arrive? 
I heard his car arrive. I didn't hear him knock on the door, but what it was, uh, I was sitting in the, in the lounge room and I heard this car and I got up and I, oh, that's Graham, and sat back down again. Okay, and that, this was Wednesday? Uh, look, I thought it was Monday, but it was, I think it was the 23rd of September, but uh, when I spoke to my wife, she said, I think it was Wednesday. So I think so it's Monday or um, Wednesday. It was the start of the school holidays. Okay. And did you hear the car or did you see it? No, I only heard it because once I realised whose car it was, I sat back down again. I didn't have to go and look at it. Yeah. So you, you heard his car enough to know that it was... It was yeah, um, I heard it enough to know it was Graham's car because he, uh, he, he lived next door, so I knew the car. Yeah. You don't know if it was a Monday or Wednesday morning. Um, well, wife... just, it, it's a long time ago. I thought it was a Monday, but uh, my wife said it was uh, more likely the Wednesday. Do you know um, what time that might have been? Uh, this morning, I would have said somewhere around about uh, 11-ish or could be a bit before 10, between 10 and 11. Okay. That's my recollection of it anyway. So obviously the times are a little mixed up. He doesn't quite remember if it was Monday or if it was Wednesday, and he does think it was about 11 a.m. So for now, I'll have to put that to bed. Graham Stafford then rung or spoke to Melissa from work and said that he was upset and couldn't concentrate, he was worried about Leanne, so he was coming home from work. In fact, and on his evidence, he said he was sick, he was feeling sick about it. On Melissa's evidence, she said he was vomiting and feeling sick. Mm. Uh, He disputed that. The Crown uh, made a point of it that um, he, he was vomiting because he had just been with a dead body. Yeah. So there was this, and these are links. They are. We, we talked about the chain. These these are links. So Tuesday night, Leanne's reported missing at the Goodner Police Station. On the Wednesday morning, the, the Queensland Police ramped up the investigation from a missing person report to a murder investigation. I'm wondering if they were, the police were acting on the 9010 theory. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't understand that, what that is, what they found uh, with research is that in crimes of violence, in 90% of the cases, the victim knows her attacker. Yeah. So, so here we have Graham Stafford, who knows Leanne, and he's actually the last person on the Crown evidence to see her alive. So perhaps it was just a case of, well, here's a young 12-year-old girl. She's gone missing. We're not sure if she's run away, but let's start a murder investigation. And if she turns up, we're well and good. So they set up a forward command post. They called in detectives on overtime. They set up a major incident um, log. And just to explain what that is, you've got to understand this is pre-computer times. Yeah. So so they had a sheet, a running sheet, for want of a better word, and it was numbered as jobs came in, as information was came in, it was recorded on the job sheet and there was a supervisor there to see uh, what was coming in and what needed to be done and typical jobs that would be issued and, in fact, were issued were, include speak to all the neighbours of 70A Ellis Street to find out if they have any information on Leanne Holland um, and that would be issued to, to a detective. And then when he returns and says, I've spoken to this person, this person, this person, that too would be recorded on the, on the uh, running, running log. They sent detectives out to track down Leanne Holland's friends, school friends, and ascertain if there was any suggestion or evidence of her running away. There had been suggestions she was unhappy at home, so perhaps it was a case that she had run away from home. Um, they sent detectives around to 70A Alice Street, who found a diary written by Leanne Holland. But they also made the comment on the job sheet that there was no other evidence to suggest foul play. The police sent the forensic teams around to 70A Alice Street to search for forensic clues. They contacted the media uh, to ensure that people were alerted to it and and, uh, put out photographs of Leanne Holland. Was there anything in the diary that made them... um look at that or was it just the fact that she was gone and left her diary behind that that made them take note of that i was never privy to what was in the diary okay but nothing was ever said about what or wasn't in the diary they also sent out two police on motorcycles to search for the, the missing person around lunchtime on the wednesday and and as we said they actually found the body at 2 p.m the following day so you know full marks to the police for 
for setting up this investigation so quickly. Full marks to the uh, motorcycle police for, for finding the body. Because that's a big area. Oh, but we're talking many, many, many square miles and, you know, five-plus suburbs in the area. Mm. Um, the body could have lain there for weeks before it was found. On that Wednesday, Jamie, there is absolutely no doubt that Graham Stafford became the main and sole suspect of the Queensland Police for the disappearance of Leanne Holland. Absolutely no doubt. He was in the crosshairs. He, he was in the crosshairs. True story. All his clothing, shoes, bedding and vehicle were seized and taken away for forensic um, examination. A hammer was seized. Uh, no other bedding in the house or clothing was seized, as was Terry Holland's car. It was examined but wasn't taken. Okay. Again, maybe they were working on the 9010 theory. Um, I don't know because it's never coming up. Whether, <laughs> whether that issue was addressed in the police review, we don't know. This next clip is from a TV show called Australian Story. I can remember Graham ringing up and I spoke to him and he said, uh, Leanne's gone missing. He said she didn't come home last night. And then the next day he rang me and said, Carmel, and he was like, you could just hear in his voice, he says, Carmel, the police have come and taken my car. He said, I don't know why, they've taken my car. So, so what was the evidence that pointed to Graham Stafford that day? Well, I'm not being flippant. I've... De- split the evidence into big-ticket items and small-change items. Yep. Now, quite simply, some links in the chain, some pieces of evidence will have far more impact on a jury than other pieces of evidence. So the ones that have the big impact, they're the big-ticket items. The ones that will have no impact, little impact, are small-change items. Makes sense. Yeah. So what were the big ticket items. Let me tell you, there were a lot. Yeah. There there were a lot of big ticket items. The first one was the time of death. You know, we've talked about the window of opportunity that Graham Stafford had, and he had from the 8 to 4.30 on that Monday. Outside those hours, not possible. He didn't do it. So Queensland Police concluded, with the help of forensic entomologist, that the time of death was on or about Monday, the 23rd of September. She gave a time of around 6pm on the Monday or 8am on the Tuesday. And the reason that is, is that the, the flies don't lay eggs in the dark. So it was it was before dark or after sunrise. So it was yeah. around 6, 6 on the Monday or 8 on the Tuesday. Yeah. We've talked about the time available up until 4.30. So... You know, I guess you you have to be a bit fluid with the time of death. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We had Graham Stafford read his statement out that he initially gave to police. Here it is. I am a single male person, 28 years of age, and I currently reside in a de facto relationship with Melissa Jane Holland at 70A Alice Street, Goodner. I also reside at this address with Terence Holland and also Leanne Holland. I have resided at this address for approximately three months. I recall Monday the 23rd of September 1991 was my roster day off work and I stayed home for the day at 70A Alice Street, Goodner, until approximately 12 midday. At approximately this time, I left 70A Alice Street, Goodner. I travelled to 16 Doble Avenue, Collingwood Park, where I visited a friend, namely Arthur Power. I stayed there for approximately one to two hours. After conversing with Arthur Power, I returned to 70A Alice Street, Goodner, where I remained and I worked on my vehicle. I recall at approximately 8am on the morning, I was approached by Leanne Holland and she mentioned to me that she wished to dye her hair. As a result of Leanne telling me this, 
I obtained a box of hair dye which was left over from when I mine died and I told Leanne that she could use this to dye her hair and that she could wait until Melissa came home so that she could dye her hair. As a result of this conversation with Leanne, she then rang her father Terence Holland at his place of work and I did not hear the conversation which she had with her father. After she had made this call to her father, she again approached me in the bedroom of the house. She informed me that she was going down to the shops. She did not state which shop she was going to. I assumed she was going to the shops in Goodna. I did not actually see Leanne leave the house. I would estimate that she left the house at approximately 9.30 on the 23rd of the 9th, 1991. At the time when she spoke to me in the bedroom, she was wearing the following clothing a purple knitted woolen jumper, and from memory she was wearing a skirt which was of black colour. When Leanne told me she was going to the shops, she did not inform me that she was meeting anyone down at the shops or how long she would be at the shops for. At the time when I was talking with Leanne whilst I was in my bedroom, I was wearing a pair of blue football shorts and I was not wearing a shirt. I was also wearing a pair of underpants. However, I cannot recall what colour they were. I have placed these items of clothing in the dirty clothes basket in the house and they have not been washed. I wore the pair of shorts all day and later went and I visited my friend at Collingwood Park. I wore a blue B&D shirt. Also on the day, I was wearing a pair of Reebok running shoes, which I am wearing at the present time. After Leanne left the house, approximately 20 minutes later, a friend of Leanne's rang namely Trish Lynch, and she inquired where Leanne was and I informed Trisha that uh, Leanne had left to go to the shops at Goodna. As a result of me telling Trisha this, she told me that she also intended to go down to the shops at Goodna. After this conversation, the telephone call was terminated and I then went downstairs and worked on my vehicle, which is a Holden Gemini, which is red in colour. The work which I was conducting on my vehicle entailed replacing the front shock absorbers on my vehicle. I only got one of these replaced due to the fact that whilst I was working on my car, I pulled the vehicle off the jack and it hit my elbow under the wheel arch. As a result of this occurring, I went to the doctor's surgery and was attended by Dr. Jusub, and as a result of this visit, I learnt that I'd injured the tendon in my left arm. This injury to my arm occurred at approximately 2.30 to 3pm and later I attended the doctors at approximately 4pm. After attending the doctors, I returned to 70 Ayala Street, Goodna, at approximately 4.40pm. Melissa returned home, then I accompanied her to Franklin's where we did our grocery shopping. I recall that when I arrived home from my friend's place at approximately 3pm, and also when we came home from shopping, that Leanne was not home. Due to her not being at home, I assumed that she had met up with Trish Lynch, and she would have been with her as she from time to time stayed at her residence. To my knowledge, she did not come home on Monday night and on Tuesday morning at approximately 6.15 I left for work. I did not see Leanne in the house. On Tuesday afternoon I finished work and at approximately 3pm I returned to 70A Alice Street, Goodner and when I arrived home there was no other person at the house. I stayed at the house and Melissa arrived home at approximately 4.40pm. As a result of Leanne not being home, both myself and Melissa waited at home until Terence Holland came home and we discussed the whereabouts of Leanne and as a result of this, both myself and Melissa drove to the Gales Caravan Park where we located Trisha Lynch and she informed us that she had not seen Leanne for the last couple of days. As a result of this, we returned to 70A Alice Street, Goodner, where we further conversed with Melissa's father and as a result of this conversation, we all attended the Goodner Police Station to report Leanne being missing. On Monday 23rd 9th 1991 at approximately 9.30 when I last spoke to Leanne, I cannot recall if she was wearing any jewellery or if she was wearing shoes. She was wearing her hair as she always wore it, by that I mean it was still long blonde coloured hair which is permed. At the time when she left for the shops she was not wearing any makeup. I have known Leanne Holland for a period of time, namely 11 months, and I have lived in the same household for the past three months. During this period, that time I have known her. It is not uncommon for her to stay at her friend's place and to my knowledge, she always informs her father of her whereabouts. During the period of time that I have resided at the same abode as Leanne, I have been able to converse freely with her and have not had any altercations with her during this time that I have known her. 
To my knowledge, there have not been any arguments between Melissa and Leanne or between Leanne and her father. I should point out that uh, even after being given the opportunity to peruse my statement, I did not uh, realise that uh, they had me wearing blue shorts, which was incorrect. I was wearing Bronco shorts uh, at the time and all day on the 23rd of September. Another significant piece of evidence was the hair dye. Uh, We've heard evidence of calls to and fro on the Monday between Leanne and Terry, Melissa and Graham, Melissa and Leanne, about her wanting to dye her hair and Graham Stafford would allegedly help her. Mm. So when she went missing, she had blonde hair. When she was found, she had red hair, auburn hair. Yeah. And it was the case that Graham Stafford had helped her dye her hair in the bathroom, things had got out of control and he had killed her. Mm-hmm. Carried carried her body down the front steps and placed it in the boot of his car, and and he then dumped the body on the Wednesday morning at Red Bank Plains. Yeah, when the forensics went up to the house at on that morning, um, the first thing they did was they conducted the examination of the house and the car for blood, and all this was videotaped. There was a police videographer there. Uh, my name's Joe Crowley. I am a barrister. I specialise in criminal law um, and I teach criminal law at Bond University. Would you mind walking us through the blood evidence that basically had a massive impact on Graham Stafford's trial? Yeah, okay. The police scientist, he arrives at uh, the house at Alice Street where Graham Stafford and Leon Holland lived um, on the 24th of, sorry, the 25th of September, Wednesday, 25th, um, the police arrive and they start doing scientific tests at the house. Uh, police in the field um, can't do definitive tests about blood. They do a, a preliminary, a presumptive test. And so he goes around the house and he starts testing for blood, for traces of blood. Um, he takes 68 swabs of blood, um, takes swabs of blood from places, for example, like um, uh, the steps at the front of the house, uh, the veranda at the front of the house, um, the front door, the hallway, kitchen floor, um, the wall between the lounge and the kitchen, the door jam, uh, and then he goes into the bathroom and he starts doing uh, the bathroom wall that adjoins the kitchen, bathroom wall above the shower rows, one the opposite bathroom wall, the windowsill in the bathroom, the sink in the bathroom, the bath. So he tests all of these with this presumptive test, and every time he's testing, he's getting a positive result, indicating that the pre- preliminary test is picking up blood. And what about the Graham Stafford's car? Yeah, so he then um, uh, goes out to the car. So Graham Stafford's car is parked in the front driveway. Um, and he starts testing that. He he tests, sorry, he might actually test it the next day um, at the police holding out, but when he does test it, he gets um, a positive result on this preliminary test from a number of items that are in the boot of the car. So there's a blanket in the boot, he gets a positive off that. As a, a, a random piece of fabric, I assume that's a sort of a rag, he gets a positive result of that. As a chucks cloth, he gets a positive result. There's an old singlet, he gets a positive result, a sponge, and there's a piece of cardboard. So he's testing all these things in the boot and he gets positive results. He then tests parts of the boot. So inside the boot lip, so this is the... Um, you know, the old-style sedan where the boot flips up, so he tests inside the uh, lip of that and he gets a positive result. Right. Um, He tests inside the driver's door, gets a positive result. Inside the passenger side door, gets a positive result. Um, On the steering wheel, gets a positive result. Um, And on a chamois bottle uh, that's in the car and he gets a positive result. So he's getting positive results from this preliminary test as he goes around both in the boot of the car and then in the car itself. Wow. And and what about items in the house like the the mop bucket? Um there was a there was a mop bucket, is that right, with water in it? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so at the back door of the house, you open the back door and there's the stairs that go down and there's a little landing, if you like, at the top of those stairs and there's a, a mop and bucket there with dirty water still in it. Right. Um and so he tests that water and he gets a positive result on that as well, which which fits the profile that they're building that 
the murder has occurred in the house and that Graham Stafford has then cleaned it up, uh, you know, using the mop and bucket. And what about the murder weapon? Was there anything located, you know, on a hammer that Graham Stafford owned? Was there any blood located on that? Yeah, so in the boot of the car, there is a bag, a sort of an old sports bag, and it's full of tools. One of those tools, um, it's hard to know exactly what it was because some people describe it as a hammer, some people describe it as a mallet, but it's um, a hammer or a mallet, and uh, that's tested um, pre- as a preliminary test for blood, and again, that tests positive for for human blood. Well. Wow. So is that pretty much all the blood evidence? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of generally the blood evidence. I mean, they test uh, lots of places. They get some blood off the shower curtain. Um, They get – there's a couple of spots of blood so they can actually see blood on shower curtain above the shower rows um, in the bar, in the bath, uh, on uh, one of the skirting boards in the bathroom and then also, I think, a skirting board outside. And – um, that then uh, gives them the or supports a the theory that they have that the murder occurs in the bathroom, particularly things like the drop of blood that's above the shower rose. So, um, you know, the shower, that, that's obviously quite high on the wall. So they take that to mean that this is part of a blood splatter um, that, uh, you know, that Graham Stafford's failed to clean up. Um, and that certainly is something that features uh, later on. The trial judge at the trial when he sums up the prosecution case to the jury, he describes a number of times that the prosecution are alleging that the blood is in unusual places in the house, and he's referring to things like this spot of blood, which appears, you know, quite high up in the bathroom above the shower rows, and also a spot of blood which appears quite high up on the shower curtain. So those kind of things, I understand from hearing later what the head foreman of the jury said, you know, really seem to impact on the jury. And those uh, um, those spots of blood you're talking about in the bathroom were actually visible to the eye, but the other ones in the in the car and and the hammer on the stairs and the mop bucket those those that blood you couldn't see. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So the the preliminary um, test that they do for blood will detect blood even if it's not visible, and that's obviously because I need a test which will detect if somebody's cleaned blood up. So the police were using that test around the house, in the bathroom, in the car, even when they couldn't see blood. But those spots in the bathroom that I mentioned were actual spots of blood that you could see there's photographs of them. Um, uh, And the ones there was a couple of spots on the front stairs, again, and on the veranda, which were actual spots of blood which you could see. But uh, a lot of the other ones, there was no visual sign but the test the preliminary test um came up as a positive for blood thank you joe for walking us through that evidence and we'll be hearing more from him at a later stage now you have to remember this was a high this was a blue collar area with a high chemical content in the atmosphere and sango testing not only reacted to blood it reacted to to other chemicals so there was no blood in the video, but the car reacted to blood. Now, fortunately for the Crown, these videos were shown to the jury without the clarifying evidence that the majority of blood was eliminated in the laboratory. In other words, what went to the jury was that there was blood throughout the house, throughout the car, in a, in a bucket on the back steps, on Graham Stafford's hammer, and pretty much everywhere, and throughout his car. One of the officers had been instructed to search for Graham Stafford's clothing. It, it came out that on the Monday when Melissa went to work in the morning, he was wearing Bronco shorts and a blue shirt and underpants. When she got home that afternoon, he was still wearing the same clothes. The officer found the clothing in the washing basket, but he wrote in his notes in big letters, None located with bloodstains, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Mm. I got the feeling the officer was a bit frustrated that he didn't find blood on those items. Another good point for the Crown. Yeah. So, But it gets worse. On that Wednesday, a maggot was found in the boot of Graham Stafford's car. And it was, it was later determined that the maggot was of the same species as those taken from the body. Graham, Graham mm. Stafford could not explain how the maggot got there. And this 
was a very, very significant piece of evidence. Mm. And, and the judge referred to it on numerous occasions during summing up. Just to explain, the Crown give their evidence at a trial, the defence give it their evidence, but before the jury go to retire to consider their verdict, the judge sums up the evidence for both sides. Okay. So, so that the jury are clear on, on uh, what the evidence is. And the judge commented on the maggot in the boot on many, many occasions. Not as, not as many as the tyres, which I'm about to tell you about. On the tyres, the judge commented on 18 occasions about mm. the tyres. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to speculate about what the jury thought. No. But I think they were left in no doubt that the, the judge was impressed by the maggot evidence and the tyre evidence. On the tyre evidence, Graham Stafford had two different types of tyres on his car. He had a, a smaller, thinner road tyre on the front axles and a wider, low-profile performance tyre on the rear axle. It was an unusual combination and rarely seen together. Yeah. So at the, at the body dump site, there were two separate tyre impressions found in the dirt near the body. When the forensic compared these impressions to the two separate tyres on Graham Stafford's car, they found they were identical. That, to me, was a, a big link yeah. in the chain. Yep. That is very, very compelling evidence, in my humble opinion. Of course. And as I said, the judge referred to it on no less than 18 occasions uh, about the identical tyre marks being found to the, to the car. But there were more problems for Graham Stafford. Two people came forward and told police they saw a red car at the body dump site on the Wednesday morning. And one of the witnesses, after being shown a photo of Graham Stafford's car whilst in the witness box, identified it as being the shiny red car she saw in the bushes as she drove by, including the sunroof, the aerial and the O'Neill sticker across the windscreen. The body was found lying on a black plastic bag and identical black plastic bags were found in a drawer in the kitchen of the Holland house. You, you might say that's not a big ticket item, but the fact that you've got a black plastic bag and the same brand of black plastic bag found in the house ties it in nicely that, okay, by itself it might, might not mean much, but when you add it together with this other evidence, it becomes compelling. Yeah. The chain gets stronger and thicker. But it absolutely does. There's a train going past. Hang on. We just need a plane, mate, and we'll be all set. <laughs> okay. Very funny. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> okay. The Crown alleged that um, the last positive sighting of Leanne Holland was at 10.15am or thereabouts on the Monday. And... Terry and Melissa didn't get home till about 4.30, so he had abundant opportunity to commit the murder. Yeah. Now, he changed the shock absorbers on his car on that Monday. He claimed that the jack slipped off the stand and it plopped down and injured his elbow. It wasn't a significant injury, but it hurt, and he went to the doctor on a Tuesday afternoon. He told the police that he went to the doctor on the Monday afternoon. Yeah, right. And, and he later changed it and said it was just an honest mistake. Yeah. They said, they said that he was uh, creating an alibi for himself and, uh, and filling in the day, so to speak. Yeah. Now, in relation to the elbow, no one could see the injury. He was telling people, oh, I've got the sore elbow, I've got the sore elbow, you know, the, the, should, the jack fell off. And the detectives agreed that they examined his body and they examined his elbow and there was no sign of an injury. And, uh, and they wouldn't have known about it except unless he had told them about it. Now, it was a Crown claim that he'd, he'd injured himself while he was bashing the end of death. Yeah. To further cement the, uh, the issue, they had a mechanic, police mechanic, inspect the underside of the car, and there was no marks consistent with a jack slipping off the stand. Oh, jeez. Like I said, you know, one issue, the, the changing the shock, shock absorbers does not make you a killer. But when you add them with all the rest of the stuff, it starts looking pretty grim. Mm -hmm. Now, I talked about small change items. Um, Graham Stafford had a 
had a chair in the boot of his car. Uh, he used to go with Melissa while she played netball and he'd sit on the sidelines and the season was over. And in his words, he took the, the chair out that day because he was cleaning his car out and uh, the chair was rattling around in the back, so he removed it. On the crown case, he took the chair out so he could put the body in the boot. So the moral of the story is don't clean your car out. <laughs> Because it's such an innocent act. It's such an innocent act. But when, like you said, when you put it, if you're the suspect in a murder and, you know, the narrative is that you've made room for a body, it's, it's damning, even though it's so innocent. <laughs> I, I think a, a lot of millennials would agree with you. Mm. Don't clean your car out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talking about the car, was him washing his car ever a, an item? that the um, police raised in the case? Yes, they did. He washed his car at 3pm on the Monday and there was a receipt found in the car to confirm that he had washed the car. So that's fact, that happened? That happened. And the police went to the car wash and took possession of a CCTV showing the car there. But uh, unfortunately, this, the, the CCTV went missing. Right. It was never really an issue at the court case about him washing the car, although they did mention it. Yeah. Uh, I think there was a suggestion that he had cleaned up, you know, after the murder. Yeah. The wheelie bin. Graham Stafford denied putting the wheelie bin out that week, as did Terry and Melissa, and it was usually Terry's job. So by default, Graham Stafford was lying and had put the bin out, uh, possibly to dispose of evidence um, to do with the murder, perhaps hair dye or something like that. Right. Another small change item, uh, a co-worker, on the Wednesday morning, a co-worker described him as looking nervous. I sent a Facebook message to this co-worker who noticed him nervous, but I haven't heard a reply. If I do, I'll be sure to let you know. Not everything went the crown way. And I want to um, play you a, a record of an exchange between the defence counsel and the arresting officer at the committal proceeding. And it's quite apparent that at the time of the arrest of Graham Stafford, this was not a strong case at all. But obviously by the time it went to trial, it had changed dramatically. This exchange is between the defence counsel and the arresting officer. This is not their real voices. You were the arresting officer. I wonder if you would be good enough to tell me why. What circumstances were you relying on to charge my client with murder? Yes, well, it was obviously the blood on the tyres. Now, just take it slowly. The blood. This was blood in the house. Well, the boot, the house, yes, and the tyres. Two separate tread patterns matched up to two tyres on his car. He had the opportunity on the 23rd, and there are other things that have come out since, yes. Can you think of those other things? Yeah, well, there was a discussion with Inspector King and Graham and myself, and on what we had gathered at that time, what we were told by the scientific people, Miss Bentley and Dr Ashby, and yeah, that was the evidence. This next clip is a reporter from Channel 9 News in September 1991. After a day of searching, two police trail bike riders found the girl's half-naked body in bushland only 30 metres from busy Red Bank Plains Road. On the Thursday afternoon, some police trail bike riders found the body. Scientific officers are searching the area. A cigarette lighter was found a short distance away and police have begun taking plaster casts of a number of footprints. This next clip is from a TV show called Australian Story. They were interviewing the jury foreman on the Stafford vs. the Crown case. For me to find Graham Stafford guilty, it was quite an easy decision due to the circumstances and the facts that we were given. The facts were that the maggot in the boot, the blood in the boot, the location of the vehicle, seen on site where the body was found, all those sort of things, the time frame, all matched up that Graham Stafford was a party to it. Twenty-two days later, another 12-year-old girl was murdered in Gunda. It wasn't Graham Stafford because he was in custody. The Crown dismissed this murder 
as unrelated because, among other things, the cause of death was different. Thanks for listening to Who Killed Leanne Holland. Join us next time for Chapter 5. We will discuss in depth the problems identified with the strong forensic and circumstantial crown case evidence. And believe me, there are many. At the end of the series, I will invite you to be the jury in the trial of the Crown vs. Graham Stewart Stafford and cast your vote guilty or not guilty. Regardless of your vote, you will also be invited to sign a petition addressed to the Queensland Attorney General requesting an inquest be held into the death of Leanne Sarah Holland. It does not matter if you are not a resident of Queensland nor even live in Australia. Just add your support to show the Attorney General an inquest will be the only way to resolve the many unresolved problems identified with this case. An inquest may be the only way to force the secret police review to be made public. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. It was recorded, edited, and theme song by Jamie Pultz. It was mixed and mastered by Alex Rotier at Paperbark Studios. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to my auntie Vivi over in Texas, who provided some background music. Those piano pieces that you heard, that's her talented fingers playing those, so thank you, auntie Vivi. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland. You can also head to our websites to read our vlogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. All links will be on the show notes. Thanks for your support and your feedback during this podcast. It means a lot to us. And from now on, episodes will be released every second Tuesday. I'd also like to thank a few companies for helping me produce a better sounding podcast. Zoom, Audio Technica, Yamaha, Sound Theory, and Isotope. These companies have really helped me up my game, which gives you a better listening experience. Thanks for listening to Who Killed Leon Holland. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.